It's my very great honor and privilege at this time to introduce our distinguished guest speaker, a gentleman who is noted not only within the membership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but throughout the nation for his vigor, for his vitality in attacking basic concrete issues in concrete terms, for his distinguished record in the Church and in the business world. Without any further ado, it is now my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Elder Sterling W. Sill, Assistant to the Council of the Twelve. In listening to this very generous introduction of Dr. Bernhardt's, I thought of a man who said to his wife, how many really great men do you think there are in the world? And she said, I don't know, but I'm sure of this, there's one less than you think there is. I appreciate, my brothers and sisters, this privilege of having a part with you in this devotional service. This is an hour of our lives when we set apart to put our minds in contact with a particular kind of ideas. Someone has said that the human mind has some of the qualities of the tendrils of a climbing vine. It tends to attach itself and draw itself upward by what it is put in contact with. When the lawyer asked Jesus which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus built his answer around our two most important needs. The greatest need that anyone has is for God. God created us. God lends us strength. He enlightens our minds and quickens our understandings. At this very minute, in spite of the snowstorm, he is sending us energy and food and vitality from the sun. It's an interesting thing to think about that if the sun's rays were turned off for just a few hours, that there would be no life left upon this earth. That is, we do not live on an independent earth. Because our greatest need is for God, that has become the basis for the first and the greatest commandment. Now, the second great commandment is also built around our second great need which is for the goodwill and inspiration of other people. The greatest power in the world is the power of love, and that is something that we need to develop in our lives. But the second greatest power is the power of example. One of our greatest assets is to have before us some good, actual working models of righteousness. We talk in the Church a great deal about our right to receive inspiration from God. And what a thrilling thought it is that if we properly order our lives, we may entitle ourselves to receive direction and guidance from the source of all intelligence and power. But one of the things we don't always understand is our right to draw inspiration from the great men and women that God has placed here to be our examples and benefactors. That is, all greatness is in people. Thomas Carlyle once said that the history of a nation is written in the biographies of its great men. Certainly the history of the Church is written in the biographies of the men and women who make up its membership and its leadership. But every business and every profession finds its success in the lives of those who constitute its membership. 
Emerson said on one occasion that every institution is the length and shadow of some man. It seems to me that the greatest men and women are those who can most effectively utilize the good from other lives and make it a part of their own success. In Thomas Carlyle's book, Heroes and Hero Worship, he says you cannot look upon a great man without gaining something from him. He said great men taken up in any way are profitable company. Now this morning, if I could, I'd like to try and put your minds in contact with an idea for transferring greatness from others to ourselves. Socrates mentioned this idea on one occasion when he was invited to attend a dinner given by some of the most famous or attended in attendance at which were some of the most famous men of Athens. Back in those days, they sat in a circle at dinner around on the floor and partly supported themselves by leaning against each other. And Socrates said that he was glad to be there because, he said, as water can be made to run by means of a siphon from the fuller to the emptier cask, so wisdom can be made to run from the greater to the less among men. Now, with this principle in mind, the New York University, under the direction of Chancellor Henry M. McCracken, used a very large gift made to the university in 1899 to build a memorial which has been called the Hall of Fame for Great Americans. This building is 630 feet long. It is located on a beautiful site in Upper New York, overlooking the valleys of the Harlem and the Hudson Rivers. It is a circular terrace in form with a superimposed colonnade connecting the University Hall of Philosophy with the Hall of Languages. The membership is limited to those who have been dead for 25 years and who receive a majority vote of the, the 100 great Americans who make up the Electoral College. Since its beginning 62 years ago, only 89 have qualified for membership. Each one is represented by a, a bronze bust and a pedestal and an explanatory tablet. The American Hall of Fame represents what is supposed to be the outstanding gathering of greatness ever assembled in all of history. And they are represented, of course, by this greatest collection of statuary known in the world. But centuries before, the American Hall of Fame was thought of. The ancient Greeks gave a little, a little different twist to this idea of transferring greatness. They set aside their highest mountain in northern Greece, Mount Olympus, which reaches some 10,000 feet up into the sky, and created thereon, through their mythology, a national home for the great, their great heroes and national deities. Then as they looked up to and loved these supermortals, who were supposed to inhabit this sacred mountaintop, they put their minds in contact with the virtues and the abilities of their heroes. Then their thoughts grew tall and their spirits were made strong. By this adoration, their ambitions were formed in a giant mold. They demonstrated the, ideas that, the idea that minds can be broadened, that hearts can be enlarged. One cannot long remain small while he is thinking and living big. Greatness can be made to reproduce itself in the lives of others. This upward reach in human lives brought on the golden age of Greece. No wonder the people of, of 
Sparta developed qualities of strength and greatness when they imagined themselves to be the children of Hercules. But probably all of us do something very similar to this in our own way. For example, Abraham Lincoln did the same thing, did this same thing. When Nancy Hanks lay on her deathbed, she said to her nine-year-old son, Abraham Lincoln, Abe, go out there and amount to something. And that is exactly what he did. He formed an attachment for great ideas as they, and great ideals as they were found in great people and in great books, particularly the great scriptures. The memory of Lincoln's mother and the influence that the Bible had upon his life probably made the greatest contributions to making him what he was. But probably next to this, the influence of another book, written by W.R. Weems entitled The Life of Washington, did a great deal in molding the life and character of Abraham Lincoln. That is, Abraham Lincoln had his own Hall of Fame, by means of which he put his mind in contact with those people and ideals and ambitions which he desired to fashion his life by. In the Old Testament, there's a very interesting account of how young King Saul qualified as king of Israel. The scripture says, And there went with Saul a band of men whose hearts God had touched. That is, Saul gathered around him the best men of his kingdom from which he might draw his own inspiration and strength and courage. James Preston Burke has written a stimulating poem based on this scriptural passage entitled, Bands of Men. He said, Lord, don't send us out to battle alone amid the entanglements of life's unknown, but support and cheer us, thou guardian friend, in bonds of fellowship with bands of men. Much is perplexing in life's every day, with great complications obscuring the way. Because we are anxious to reach the end, accompany us, Lord, with bands of men. Men with compassion, men with zeal, men who can think, men who can feel, men whose hearts are touched by Thee. Noble men, strong men, men who are free. One of the most pleasant and productive parts of my own life, I think, is that which I have spent as a sort of a hero worshiper. That is, there are very few things that give me the thrill of satisfaction that I get from the contemplation of the life of someone who knows where he's going and how he's going to get there and who can do things on his own power. And then over the years, I have gathered together some of my own heroes and established my own private, personal Hall of Fame. That is, in my mind, I have erected the pedestals, and I have written up their tablets to my own specifications. I now have 51 great men and women whose hearts, whose hearts God has touched, and who in turn have touched my heart. They are housed in my own spiritual sanctuary and are available to my slightest need. On one of these pedestals is located my old high school principal, who served as an idol to me throughout my younger days. Next to him, on the next pedestal, is an early-day Sunday school teacher. A third contains the bust of the man who was more than anyone else responsible for molding my business life. I have studied the lives of great men from every age and from every walk of life, and I have made my own selections carefully. 
and in inscribing their tablets. I have paid particular attention to including only those qualities which have the greatest power to move me in the right direction. Among my 51 heroes, I have included Moses and Mormon and Moroni and Socrates and Antonio Stradivari and Booker T. Washington. My own mother and father are prominently pedestaled in my council of great lives. There they remain forever, always anxious to inspire and encourage and assist me in every possible way. Some time ago, a friend of mine gave me an ear of Indian corn. The kernels on this uh, ear were half red and half yellow. Now, it's a little bit uh, interesting to figure out how those red kernels got on that ear until we understand this great principle of cross-pollinization. That is, if you plant a, a red variety and a yellow variety of corn close together, the bees and the wind carry this vitalizing pollen back and forth and mix up everything with within reach. But there is a far more interesting and important interchange continually going on between people. Now, inasmuch as this is the month of great men, probably it might be appropriate to think a little bit about how we might make the most uh, use of this interesting interchange that is always going on among us. In Oscar Hammerstein's song, Stout-Hearted Men, he said, A heart can inspire other hearts with its fire. And then he said, Give me some men who are stout-hearted men, who will fight for the right they adore. Start me with ten who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you ten thousand more. Now, to appreciate this principle in operation, we might think about the influence that Socrates exerted upon Plato, or Beatrice upon Dante, or Jesus upon the life of Simon Peter. We may not be fully conscious of the influences or the influence of those that are molding our own lives, but it is still going on. Red kernels are still being transplanted into yellow ears. It is a much easier process to become great or successful in the company of great or successful men. Greatness feeds upon itself. Men can absorb other men. Agreeable to Mr. Hammerstein's suggestion, I would like to start you with ten from my private Hall of Fame. If I could, I would like to make you the beneficiary of this spiritual radioactivity of their lives. Or to change the figure just a little bit, I'd like to tell you a personal experience. Some time ago, I was called by a friend of mine and asked if I would come to the LDS hospital and give him a blood transfusion. He was about to undergo a very serious major operation, and without the revitalizing effect of new blood, he would probably die. And as I lay there on the hospital cot and watched this blood run out of my arm, I asked the nurse how many blood transfusions I could safely give in the course of a year. And she said it would be all right to give four. That is, if it were necessary, I could save the lives of four people every year by a transfusion of my blood. And then I thought about some of the transfusions that had been given to me along life's way. Transfusions of courage, transfusions of industry, transfusions of faith. Of course, the effectiveness of this transfer is greatly increased when the donor is of, is of exactly the right type. A strong attraction of love and admiration should exist between the principal and his, and his beneficiary. 
That is between the fuller and the emptier cask. Now the first transfusion that I'd like to offer for you this morning is entitled Integrity. I have a very good uh, friend whose name is Mohandas K. Gandhi. He's the little Indian who won the independence of India from England. Gandhi weighed 102 pounds. He went around four-fifths naked. He lived in a mud hut, which never had an electric light or a telephone or running water. He didn't own an automobile. He never sought or ever held a public office. He had no armies, no diplomats, no statesmen. He was without political post, academic distinction, scientific achievement, or artistic gift. Yet men with great governments and powerful armies behind them paid homage to this little man. Gandhi started out with a very unpromising beginning. He was a coward. He was afraid of the dark. He was afraid of serpents. He was afraid of people. He was afraid of himself. He had a very bad temper. He had some very serious sex problems. But realizing the disadvantages that these undesirable traits gave him, he deliberately started out to remake himself. And he later called himself a self-remade man. Now, if you'd like one of the best phrases that I know anything about, there it is. I suppose that, after all, all of us are self-remade men. I heard one man say something at one time about being a self-made man, and his friend observed that he was a horrible example of unskilled labor. (laughs) I suppose this is the place where we ought to put our best effort. When Gandhi was very young, He took a pledge from his mother that he would remain a vegetarian throughout his life. Many years after his mother had died, Gandhi became very ill, and the doctors tried to persuade him that if he would drink a little beef broth, it may save his life. But Gandhi said, even for life itself, we may not do certain things. There is only one course open to me, to die, but never to break my pledge. Now, just supposing that we could infuse ourselves with this kind of integrity... Some time ago, Mr. Khrushchev said that Russia would never attack the United States. What did he mean? Did he mean that they were just now mounting an an attack which he was trying to throw someone off guard? Or did he mean what he said? I haven't the slightest idea. If Mr. Gandhi had said it, I would have known exactly what he meant. The second transfusion is entitled Faith. In the first part of the 15th century... A French peasant maid by the name of Joan of Arc was called upon to save her country from its enemies. With her sacred sword, her consecrated banner, and her belief in her mission, she swept her enemies before her. She sent a thrill of enthusiasm through the French army such as neither king nor statesman could produce. On one occasion, she said to one of her generals, I will lead the men over the wall. The general said, Not a man will follow you. Joan said, I will not look back to see whether anyone is following or not. But the soldiers of France did follow Joan of Arc, and she saved her country from its enemies, and then fell into, the, fell into their hands. While the fires were being lighted around the stake at which this 19-year-old French peasant maid would be burned alive, she was given a chance to regain her liberty by denying what she believed, and in choosing the fire... Above her freedom, she said, The world can use these words. I know this now. Every man gives his life for what he believes. Every woman gives her life for what she believes. Sometimes people believe in little or nothing, and yet they give their lives to that little or nothing. One life is all we have, and we live it as we believe in living it, and then it's gone. 
But to surrender what you are and live without belief is more terrible than dying, even more terrible than dying young. The third transfusion is entitled The Will to Win. <clears throat> On May the 10th, 1940, Winston Churchill was made Prime Minister of England. That was at a time when the great German air fleet was making round-the-clock stops across the channel, dumping plane load after plane load of bombs on England. England had been beaten to a state of almost insensibility, and nobody knew whether the British would be able to survive for another week or a month. If something, if this nation was to survive, someone had to be found who could pump into the British people the will to win. And everybody <clears throat> knew that if anyone could do that, that man's name was Winston Churchill. For in no one did the, in, in no one did the fires of freedom burn with a brighter flame. I would just like to have you imagine how you would feel if the, if the problems of a giant groggy empire were suddenly dump, dumped upon your shoulders. This is how Winston Churchill felt. He said, as I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound feeling of relief. At last I had authority to give direction over this whole scene, and I felt as though I were walking with destiny that my past life had been but a preparation for this hour, for this trial. I could not be reproached either for having made the war or for lack of preparation for it, but I felt I knew a good deal about it, and I was sure I would not fail. Fail to do what? Fail to save the world from the greatest mechanized might ever known in the world. Then Winston Churchill went before Parliament, and he said, You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war, to wage war by land and by sea and in the air, to wage war with all our might and with all the strength God has given us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I answer in one word, victory. Victory no matter how long or hard the road may be. Then he went on the radio and said to the British people, we shall not flag nor fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and power in the air. We will defend our island whatever the cost of it may be. We will fight on the landing grounds. We will fight on the, in the fields and in the streets. We will never surrender. And if which I do not for a moment believe this empire or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, will carry on the fight until in God's own time the new world in its power and might steps forth to the rescue and liberation of the old. The fourth transfusion has as its title responsibility. Major Martin Treptow was killed in the Battle of Chateau Thierry in 1918. On his body after his death his diary was found in which he had written these words. He said, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure, I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as though the entire conflict depended upon me alone. The next transfusion, number five, comes from a great man by the name of George Washington Carver. George Washington Carver lived in the days of the southern sharecroppers when it was the popular thing to move out on the soil and drain from it whatever fertility was immediately available and then move on and repeat the process in some other location. There are some people who remember George Washington Carver because of his educational effort among the Southern Negro. 
Others remember George Washington Carver because he made some 300 commercial products out of the common peanut. But I remember George Washington Carver because he said that every individual owes it to himself to leave the soil richer than when he found it. The uh, transfusion number six is entitled Determination and comes from a Polish girl by the name of Marie Sklodowska who married the French physicist Pierre Curie and for many years they worked together in an old leaky shed trying to isolate radium from a low-grade uranium ore called pitchblende. After their 487th experiment had failed, Pierre threw up his hands in despair and said it will never be done, maybe in a hundred years, but never in our day. Then Marie confronted him with a resolute face and said, if it takes a hundred years, it will be a pity, but I will not cease to work for it as long as I live. Transfusion number seven comes from our own great Civil War president. In one of Lincoln's anti-slavery debates, his opponent had said you can't afford to free the southern slaves because there's some four million of them. Each has a value to his owner of approximately $1,000. That is, you would upset the economy of this little group of southern people by some $4 billion which they can't afford. But in addition, who would take care of the corn and the cotton and the tobacco crops? When Lincoln came to the platform, he brushed all of these considerations aside as immaterial. He said, there's only one question you need to answer to know whether or not we should have slavery. And that is this, is slavery right or is it wrong? Is it right for some men to hold other men in bondage? Now, I hope with some of the students of this great university, when you have a problem that you're unable to solve, that you'd remember Lincoln's formula. Don't worry too much about any other consideration except whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Transfusion number eight comes from the father of our country, whose birthday we celebrate this week. <clears throat> in 1884, the American people erected in Washington, D.C., a white marble obelisk as a national memorial to the memory of George Washington. This giant marble shaft is 55 feet square at its base, and it reaches 555 feet into the sky. It is the loftiest and most imposing monument ever reared by man. It is higher than the pyramids. It reaches far above the cathedral domes of St. Paul's or St. Peter's. This lofty shaft fitly typifies the upward reach of Washington's exalted life. Lincoln said, Washington is the mightiest name on earth, long since mightiest in the cause of civil, civil liberty, still mightiest in moral reformation. On that name, a eulogy is expected that cannot be. To add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. Let none attempt it. In solemn awe, pronounce the name, and in its naked, deathless splendor, leave it shining on. Washington walked, walked the dizzy heights of power in the perfect balance of every faculty. The secret of Washington's success lay in the strength of his character. Character is the rarest manifestation of genius. Someone said, O oh, felicitous providence that gave George Washington to America. What a noble figure to stand in the forefront of our nation's history and under God give it its start toward its destiny. Transfusion number five comes from Grantland Rice, who for many years was the dean of American sports writers. As Marie Curie isolated radium from pitchblende, Grantland Rice tried to isolate those qualities in people that made them successful in sports or in life. 
He wrote 700 poems about these traits, trying to make them negotiable in other lives. One poem he called Courage. He said, I'd like to think that I can look at death and smile and say, All I have left now is my final breath. Take that away, and you must either leave me dust or dreams or in far flight, a soul that wanders where the stardust streams through endless night. But, said he, I'd rather think that I can look at life with this to say, Send what you will of struggle or of strife, blue skies or gray, I'll stand against the final charge of hate by peak and pit, and nothing in the steel-clad fist of fate can make me quit. And now I'd like to bring you some radiations from the greatest life that was ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior and Redeemer of the world, who in three words gave the most potent success formula ever given in the world. When he said, Come, follow me. The success of every person at this university and every person in the world will finally be judged by how well he has carried out that single direction. And I, if I could, would put your mind in contact with this thrilling testimony about him. Joseph Smith, who was appointed to lead the greatest and last dispensation, said of him, And now, after the many testimonies that have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, that we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him, even on the right hand of God. And we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. His life makes it clear to us that wealth is not what you have, but what you are. You don't work and study to acquire, but to become. The purpose of life isn't just for what you can get out of it. It's what you can become by it. Our lives are important for what they stand for and what they represent to others. We may stand for the greatest things in the world, and may we make our own individual lives significant by the direction from God and the inspiration from our fellow men, as well as from our own righteous ambition is my prayer, which I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.